Thank you for tuning in to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a church located in Lexington, Kentucky, with a heart for God and a vision for the gospel. I'm Derek Holmes, lead pastor. Right now we are in a series through the book of Colossians. So grab your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1, and let's hear from the Word. Well, I'm just glad that fall is back. I don't like the hot weather. I like the fall. I like, I just like everything about it. Pumpkin patches, you know, cider. Being able to actually walk my dog without having to come back and change my clothes because I'm just like exhausted and dead. Um, I really enjoy, t- now that, now that uh, it has changed a little bit, I'm taking Bentley on a little bit longer walks through our neighborhood. Um, our neighborhood is actually, it's, it's not that old. It's fairly uh, it's a fairly new neighborhood. It's about uh, it's about 20 years old. So, you know, like any neighborhood, it was pretty much farmland before before it was built, and and there's kind of farmland real close by to us. So we have a lot of uh, wildlife that run through the neighborhood at night. We've got a lot of squirrels, a lot of rabbits. Uh, we even have some foxes and coyotes too. But the one thing that Bentley loves when he's walking through, he is um, he's such a sweet dog. But when you when he sees a rabbit. He becomes 11 pounds of unearthly fury and hatred, and he starts running after. If he ever got a full-size rabbit, I don't know what he would, what he would do with it, but it kind of reminds me of this, um, of this story that I heard from a pastor once as he was getting ready to get into the book of Colossians, and he was talking about this, this grandpa. This grandpa owned a farm, and his grandson was there visiting, and they were sitting out uh, in the evening as the sun was beginning to set. They were sitting out on the porch after a long day. And the grandpa had about 10 dogs, and at night what they liked to do is they liked to come and sit down at the bottom of the porch and just kind of watch the sun go down with their master and things. And uh, they owned a lot of land that looked out into this thicket. And about that time, each one of the, each one of the dogs they had uh, was named after the, nine, after the nine reindeer that Santa had. You know, Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donder and Blitzen. But do you recall the most famous reindeer of all was? Rudolph. All right. And then they had another dog named Butch. So, um, so anyway... Um, I don't know how Butch got into, the, got into the club. I don't know what happened. But anyway, as they're sitting there, all of a sudden, Dasher, one of the dogs, just jumps up, starts growling, starts barking, and just starts running across the field and jumps into the thicket that's beyond there and out of sight. Well, about halfway down the field, all the other dogs, you know what they did. They jumped up and started running too. If Rudolph had been in the lead, they would have seen where they were going, obviously, because it was glowing nose. Um, but uh, they started running off into the, into the, into the brush. A few minutes later, the other nine dogs that followed Dasher into the thicket come back, panting, their tongues hanging out, tail tucked between their legs, and they all come back and just assume their position back under the porch, and just like nothing ever happened. Grandson looked at Grandpa and said, hey, where's Dasher? Aren't you worried about Dasher? And he barely even looks up from his whittle, and he said, he'll be along in just about 15, 20 minutes, son. About 15, 20 minutes, here comes Dasher. But Dasher's not alone. Dasher's got this big, juicy rabbit in his mouth. Grandpa finally looks at, his, looks at his grandson and he says, son, he said, do you know what happened there? He said, you know why I knew that Dasher would be back after the other guys? You know why all these other guys came back sooner? He said, here's what happened. He said, Dasher came back with a rabbit because he's the one who saw the rabbit. All the other guys just started chasing after commotion. The thing about Dasher was he was different from the other dogs because when he came back, not only did he have a rabbit, but he was covered in mud and he was soaking wet and everything. He said, no doubt Dasher got that rabbit back around, back about a mile away where the creek is. He said, those other guys, they just gave up after a while because they got out there and didn't know what they were chasing after to begin with. They decided to come on home. But Dasher saw the rabbit. He had a reason to run out there. He had a reason to get dirty. He had a reason to keep going and chasing that rabbit. 
That's what we're trying to do, and that's what we're trying to understand through the book of Colossians. The theme of the book of Colossians, as Paul says, is that Jesus Christ is preeminent. He's our rabbit. He's the one that if we keep our eyes on him, we chase after him. And a lot of people today, sometimes when it comes to following Christ, and they say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, but you have to ask yourself, are you truly following after Jesus Have you truly seen Jesus? Have you truly come to know Christ? Or are you just chasing after the commotion and the excitement and just a picture of what you've been told Jesus really is? Because the difference in following and finish well will be if we have a clear vision and a clear picture of Jesus Christ. If we don't have a clear picture of him, then we won't finish well. When things get hard, we'll just turn around, tuck tail, and come back panting with our tongues hanging out and say, I'm more comfortable at the porch than I am out there serving Christ. We've been talking about the preeminence of Christ. In other words, as followers of Christ, we're better off as a church, we're better off as followers of Christ when we see the rabbit, when we keep our eyes on him. When we see the rabbit, we keep chasing, we keep serving, we keep giving wherever Jesus leads us, no matter how long the journey, no matter how muddy and messy the chase may get. If I'm asked to get dirty, then I'm willing to do it. If I'm brought to a point of sacrifice, then I'm ready to give because the prize is worth it, because Jesus is worth it. The title of the message this morning is simply, Is He Worthy? We've looked at through the the majority of Colossians chapter 1 as Paul begins to lay out this theological treatise as to why Jesus is preeminent in the church. That he is God, that he is the creator, that he is all of these things, that he is the head of the church, that he is the one who sustains our life. And now we turn this corner into application. If he is so amazing and if he is so preeminent... What difference does it make in our life? If Jesus is preeminent in the church, the church will have a certain look to it. It'll have a certain flavor to it, and it'll have a certain spirit in it. And I'll tell you this, it won't be a dead church. It won't be one where we just kind of meander through life and say, well, I'm doing pretty good under the circumstances. No, a church and a person who follows the preeminent Jesus Christ has joy in their life. They have an abundant spirit in their life. Yeah, they may suffer. They may be going through problems, but they have this unpenetrable joy and unpenetrable hope in their hearts. And church, that's my question this morning. Is that what you have? Do you live with an unpenetrable joy and hope in your life because Jesus is the Lord of your life and you know that in him my hope is found just like we sang, that in Christ alone is where my hope is found. The church in Colossae were moving from this first generation of faith into the second generation. What had happened in Colossae at that time is that these people, when Epaphras came and preached the gospel, they were radically saved and radically changed by the gospel of Christ. So it was all new and it was brass knuckles and it was just, I'm learning Jesus as I go. And you know what? There's something healthy about that too. Because when you have, when all you know is Jesus, that's all you need. You find out that's all you need, but when you've got all these other things that are attached to it, it begins to hold you back. We think it enhances it, but it really holds us back. And so in the first generation of faith there in Colossae, man, the Holy Spirit was moving through that church, and God was doing some amazing things. But by the second generation, by the time these, these original believers began to disciple and reproduce and have kids and, and, and bring on other believers and people, things began to grow, other people came along. Yeah, Jesus was enough to save us, but what's going to keep us safe? What's going to sustain us? What's going to carry us forward into the future? And church, we have to realize that if Jesus was enough to save us and give us a future, he's all we need to carry us into the future. 
But the second generation of believers there in Colossae began to think, no, we've got to add to him. We've got to add some stuff to it. And I found this chart uh, not too long ago that describes the difference between first-generation spirit and second-generation spirit. And, and this is something, it, it really kind of disturbed me as I looked at this and applied this to, to church life today. Because you may say, well, we're far from first-generation. Well, I believe we can all have a first-generation spirit, but ask yourself as we look through this chart, ask yourself, am I more a first-generation or a second-generation spirit? A first-generation spirit will do whatever it takes to see the gospel go forth. The second, uh, a second-generation spirit will say, I'm only going to do what I'm asked to do. You need to say amen or oh me. The first generation will assume personal responsibility, but the second generation will assume that someone else will do it. The first generation expects personal sacrifice, while the second generation expects personal comfort. The first generation sees problems and seeks solutions, while the second generation sees the problems that come along and just complain about it. The first generation will see possibilities and dream about what could be, but the second generation will see barriers and a reason to quit. The first generation will hear the voice of God firsthand and own the vision of the ministry, while the second generation inherits the vision secondhand and questions every decision that's made in light of that vision. First generation steps out with bold, reckless trust in God, while the second generation is content to sit satisfied in the stability of the institution. A first generation will fear holding anything back from God, while the second generation fears making any commitments to God. The first generation feels privileged to be a part of the movement and what God is doing at that time, while the second generation feels entitled only to the benefits that the institution provides. And here's the thing about this. These are cycles that the church has gone through ever since the church has been instituted 2,000 years ago. Each church, our church, goes through that as well. You go through an infant stage, a first-generation phase, and then the second generation comes along. And here's the thing about this cycle. If the second generation at some point doesn't have a moment where they come to understand that they've got to move back and adopt a first-generation attitude again, the third generation will be the generation of the death of the church. That's why it's always been said that the death of Christianity is only one generation away, one silent generation away from extinction. And so the question for us is, Graceway, as Graceway Church, we've been kind of thrust back into this first-gen experience, haven't we? This first-gen situation. A few months ago, we made that decision to, to, to move to a new location because financially we kind of, we, we kind of had to say, if we're going to survive, we need to make some changes. And we need to make some changes to our financial situation, but we need to make some changes to our practice and what we do. And we need to get, we need to get serious about the gospel of Christ again. Because what happens when we struggle, whatever churches struggle, what happens is we turn inward and we begin to protect what we have and, and hold on to that tightly rather than holding on to it loosely, realizing that those are tools used for the gospel. And the thing is, is this season in our church, we need pioneers who are willing to stand up and say, I don't expect comfort, I expect sacrifice, but I also expect for Christ to be magnified in what we do. We need pioneers that are willing to say, I'll go back to first because it's worth it for the generations that may follow me. So for Colossae, you had the second generation mindset developing. And in our text, Paul, he's definitely a first generation guy. I mean, he never got out of that first generation. He's sitting over there in prison for preaching the gospel. And he said, I'm just going to keep preaching the same gospel I preached from the very moment I was called into ministry. And I'm not going to change from that. And so he moves from this treatise, this, this, this theological treatise 
of verses 12 through 22 where he's laying out all these things that Jesus is. And then he moves into an application into his life of if Jesus is so preeminent, then this is how it applies to my life. And not just to his life, but to ours as well. So look at verse number 23 of Colossians chapter 1. He says this, If you continue in the faith that is grounded and settled and, is not, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. We need to stop right there and, and, and pick out a truth out of this passage right here, out of this verse. And that first truth is this, is that the gospel must be central. Look what he said again. He said, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. He's saying to the church at Colossae, he's saying to any church that would read it in any generation, you cannot move away from the gospel. You cannot water it down. You cannot bulk it up. The gospel is what it is because the gospel rests on Jesus. And the gospel is central. And he's saying, he's saying this. He says, as you want to keep a first-generation faith, you need to keep to the first things that made you a church in the first place. And the reason we know one another, the reason we're bound together as the family of God is because of the gospel. We're not bound together by any other affinity. You may like the same teams I do, but that's not what binds us together in the kingdom of God. What binds us together in the kingdom of God is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We cannot move away from the gospel, and he says this truth can't be compromised. Let's, let's keep reading because we're going to see another truth in verse 24. Who I, Paul, now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even this mystery, which has been hid from ages and from generations, is now made manifest or is shown and is clearly shown to the rest of the world. Second truth that we have to understand is the church is the body of Christ. We're more than just a group of people. We're the body of Jesus Christ. We're the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ on, on earth. While Jesus was the express image when he was here of God, we are the express image of Jesus Christ here on earth today. We can't lose sight of that. So we have to ask ourselves, what picture are we projecting of Christ in what we do, what we believe, how we operate and see, we have to understand this, that as the head needs the body, Jesus is the head, we're the body. As the head needs the body, so the body needs the head. See, a head without a body doesn't go anywhere. But a body without a head doesn't know where it's going. So we both work together in tandem, Jesus and the church working together to accomplish the gospel ministry. Look at verse number 27 as we move to see this other truth. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, who we preach, warning every man, teaching everyone in all wisdom that we may present everyone perfect in Christ Jesus. The truth that we have to pull out of this is that Jesus is alive in us. Jesus is alive in us. He says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. When we gather together as a church and we lift up hands and we sing and we praise Jesus, you realize that you can do that very same thing Monday through Friday at home in personal worship because Jesus is right there with you. Jesus is in us, and that is the hope of glory. We possess Christ. He possesses us. It's a binary, two-way relationship that he's alive in us. No other faith system, no other idea or religion can give you that. Jesus is alive, and he is alive in us. That means we're never alone. That means we're also never without excuse. That's a wonderful promise that Jesus is in us through the Holy Spirit, but it's also 
a wonderful responsibility that we have no excuse not to serve him. We have no excuse not to follow him. We have no excuse not to glorify him. Look at verse number 29. He's whereunto I also labor, striving according to who's working? To his working. So what's Paul saying? I'm not my own boss. Jesus is my boss. And I, I strive according to his working, which works in me mightily. Here's the truth. If Jesus is alive in us, Jesus is alive in us and working in us and working through us. He's not just alive in us so that we can have this spiritual buddy to walk around and enjoy life together. He's alive in us for a purpose, so that we may take him to the nation, so that we may take him to our neighbors, our friends, our family, our coworkers, even to our enemies. He's alive in us and he's working through us. What good is it for Jesus to be alive in us if nothing is ever produced by that relationship? Jesus doesn't indwell us with the Holy Spirit so that we can just feel good about ourselves. He indwells us with the Holy Spirit to fuel us and to give us a, a, a passion in our lives. Now, we're going to take a second pass through this text because I wanted to give you some quick truths. I just want to kind of, the, the way Paul lays this text out, it's really hard to get a nice, neat little outline today. I love trying to get nice, neat little outlines. And I'll tell you what, this week I, I just, I, I gave up after a few days. I'm like, I can't do it. I'm just going to have to, just, we're just going to have to go through this like stream of consciousness because that's basically the way Paul lays it out. So I want to give you those truths because on those truths, those are incredible things to understand, right? The gospel must be central to what we do, but as we hold the gospel central, Jesus is never leaving us alone. He's alive in us and he is working in us and he is working through us. We are his body. He is our head. So how does that play out? How does that apply to my life? Well, Paul gives us several thoughts here that we have to make sure that we take and we internalize in this. And he lays them out through three subjects. He's going to look at three subjects. All this applies, and he's going to say, we need to embrace, and this is the big idea basically today. The call to follow Christ is a call to embrace three things. Suffering, sacrifice, and service. The call to follow Christ, the call to be his body, the call to be his hands and feet, the call to be, have him be alive in us and work in us and through us, he's going to do that through three things. Suffering, sacrifice, and service. How many of you want to just close up and go to lunch now and not have to hear this one, right? This is what I came out on fall break for. I came through the rain. Thought we were going to have a flood today. I'd never seen rain before. Well, now we got to sit here and talk about suffering and sacrifice and all this stuff. I don't want to do that. Well, I'm sure Paul didn't want to either, but let's look what he says in verse number 24 one more time because we pulled some truth out. Now let's look at another part of that. He says, I, Paul, now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Let's stop right there just for a second. What is Paul smoking? This is what you have to ask here. How many of you, honestly, when you're writing your best friend, you say, I am so happy that life is going so bad. Life is terrible, and I am just thrilled to death about it. I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Think about that. Think about how confusing that must have been to the Colossian readers at that time. It's confusing to us too, right? We are not creatures who seek out discomfort. We are creatures who seek comfort. How many of you with the last car you went to buy and they said, you know what, this car comes standard with leather seats, with Tempur-Pedic cushions and heated seats. It's just standard. And you looked at them and said, you know what, no, I'm not after that stuff. I need you to take that out. I'll pay extra. Just put in a, a, a wooden board for me. That's all I need when I'm rolling down the road. No, you don't do that because we're people who seek comfort. We're created to do that. 
But what Paul is saying here is that Christ calls us to suffering. Christ had called Paul to suffer. And he said, I rejoice in that suffering. Why in the world would you do that? And here's the thought that we have to understand. Joyful suffering or joyful sacrifice means giving up something that you love for something that you love even more. Why was Paul so happy in his suffering? Why was Paul willing to suffer to be sitting in prison for like the multiple umpteenth time sitting in prison suffering for the cause of Christ? Why was he willing to do that for them? Because he loved the possibility of people coming to Christ more than he loved his comfort, more than he loved his hot food, more than he loved time with the people that he loved. He loved the possibility of the gospel going forth more than he loved all that. He said, if it's what I need to do so that the gospel can go forward, I'm willing to do it. Sign me up for it. Joyful sacrifice is giving up something that you love for something that you love even more. You might say it this way, and this is thought number two. You rejoice in your suffering when you love what you gain through that suffering more than what you give up in the suffering. You you rejoice in suffering when you love what you gain through suffering more than you give up as you're suffering. And here's the thing we have to understand too, that while that's taking place, if you don't have the proper love in your heart, you're never going to endure the suffering you're called to. Paul would have never endured his ministry had he not loved Jesus as the preeminent one in his life. Had he not been called to the cause of Christ and been fully committed to that. This is why we struggle with things in our relationship with Christ. Because truthfully, when it comes to it, sometimes God invades those things and basically he says, do you love me or do you love this? And what we say is, God, I want to love you more, but I just love this more right now. If you'll wait, I'll try to love you more, but right now I just love this more. We'll never endure if the love is not there. Best way I can describe this is through childbirth. One of the many reasons I am thankful that I am a man is because men do not have to go through childbirth. I'll just say that right now. People are always telling me how childbirth is such a beautiful, magical experience. You know what? I bought that. Until I was in the room twice watching when, when, my daughters, when my daughters were born. And I can say with absolute certainty now that there is nothing beautiful. There is nothing magical about the birth process itself. If you know much about me, you know that the sight of blood makes me a little squeamish. I'm okay. I'm secure enough in my masculinity to admit that. I pass out when I give blood. I just do it. No, there, but I'm happy to say both times. I was fully involved, fully awake, fully aware, and fully conscious through the entire thing. But I will say this. There are are things that I've seen that haunt me in my dreams still to this day. You people who say it's such a beautiful experience, you're crazy. You're absolutely, you're a sadist. There's something wrong with you and you need to seek counseling now. It's not beautiful. But if I were to ask you by show of hands in here, how many of you would say, that it's worth it, every mother in this room raises your hand. They lo- they'll say, hey, it was a joy. They'll look at their child and say, if all that pain, if all that agony, if all of that change to my body, if all of that misery is what I had to go through to have you, I'd do it a million times over and never say no once. Why? Because what you endure in the suffering is not nearly as important as what you enjoy after what the suffering produces. 
And this is what Paul is saying here. He's like, yes, I'm in prison. Yes, you're probably wondering why in the world I'm here and wondering if this Christianity thing is really something to do, if you're going to end up in prison like me. He's saying, I can't guarantee that you're not going to end up just like me if you continue to, to serve Christ. See, in America, we think, it's okay, I can serve Christ, and I'm not really going to have to pay very much. But it makes us soft, doesn't it? We think, oh man, I'm really suffering for Jesus when I have to, when I have to go to church and hear the pastor talk about tithing one more time. Or when I go to church and uh, I, had to, I had to park further away because there was more people there. Or I didn't get the seat that, I, that I'm accustomed to getting. And we're really suffering for Jesus. Oh, the hardship of the gospel. See, we don't understand suffering like that, but it doesn't mean that we won't have to understand it one day. Because Jesus said that we will all suffer to some degree for his namesake. And Jesus isn't a liar, right? He's never lied. And he said in Matthew, we'll all suffer for his namesake at some point and in some way. But without the love, we'll never endure it. This is what Paul is saying to the Colossians. I rejoice in my sufferings because I see what it is producing in you, the church. In the book of Philippians, actually called Paul's treatise on joy, just, a, just a, a, the book before Colossians, Paul says that the news of his imprisonment had caused many of them to be emboldened in their witness and become more passionate about the gospel. He said, the things that have happened to me have fallen out uh, for the gospel to go further. The things that have happened to me, my imprisonment has caused the gospel to go further. Not only had the gospel had it emboldened some of the other people who said, hey, if Paul's going to prison, we got to step it up and we got to share the gospel in, in his absence. Paul goes to prison and begins to lead his prisoners to Christ. He says, so if this was God's plan for the gospel to go forth, I'm willing to be part of it. The question we have to answer is, is that how you feel when you're presented with sacrifice and with suffering for the gospel? Do you see the gospel going out to the lost as the most important, most joy-inducing thing that could happen in your life? When you do, no suffering or no sacrifice will seem daunting, and no suffering will seem unworthy for us to endure. You see, first-generation faith means that we expect personal sacrifice for God's work to go forth, not personal comfort. And when you begin to rejoice in it because you, what you see being produced in it, you know that you've come to a first-generation kind of faith. So let's look a little bit further into our text, a little bit further into verse number 24. So he said, I'm, I'm, I'm suffering for you, and he says, I'm also doing it to fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my, in my flesh for my, his body's sake, which is the church. Now this is where I really, I really love the Christian Standard Bible's translation of this, and I want to read that too. He says, I'm completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, and that is the church. Now, at first glance, it may look like Paul is saying something blasphemous. I mean, didn't Christ accomplish everything that needed to be accomplished for salvation on the cross? And the answer is yes. Jesus dying on the cross, his blood shed on the cross, his resurrection from, his resurrection from death is everything we need for salvation to be supplied. But what Paul is saying here is, Jesus supplied salvation but his children must spread salvation. He said, I'm completing Christ's afflictions on the cross by me being afflicted to carry the gospel forth. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the Middle Ages, he said this, if Jesus had died a thousand times, it would have been pointless if no one ever heard it. Carl Henry says the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Think about that. 
You who have responded to the gospel, what if you hadn't heard the gospel until after you drew your last breath? It does no good. So this is what Paul is saying. He says, I'm suffering so that I can take the value of Christ's suffering on the cross to make salvation available. I'm suffering so that I can make it available to those who have not heard it. Jesus died to supply. We suffer to spread it. A Romanian pastor said, Christ's cross is for propitiation. Our cross is for propagation. He suffered to supply it. We suffer to spread. And that leads to the third thought. That suffering is the pathway through which God chose to bring salvation into the world. Salvation is available to us because Jesus suffered and died on a cross. It would be so much, it would be so much more easy as a preacher... To say that salvation was available through comfortable means. That Jesus didn't have to die on a cross, bloody and beaten. But that's the, that's the weight of our sin. That's the horrific nature of what we did by rebelling against God. There is a horror to the gospel. But that's what makes the news so good. That as horrific as, the, as, as sin was, Jesus overcame the horror to provide eternal life for us. Suffering is the pathway through which God chose to bring salvation into the world, and guess what? It's also the way he has chosen to spread the gospel throughout the world. This is what Paul is saying. I'm suffering for your sake. I'm suffering so that the gospel may go forward. See, we want it to be through prosperity. We want it to be through comfort. We want it to be through easy means. We want it to be through blessing. But salvation was provided to mankind through Christ's suffering on the cross. And here's what Jesus told his disciples in the book of Matthew. He said, as the Father has sent me, just as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. So as the Father has sent me suffering on a cross, I'm sending you out suffering for the gospel. Just as he has sent me, I am sending you. And the disciples are probably sitting there thinking, you couldn't maybe tweak that just a little bit? Maybe, maybe you could send me out, you know, like with a, you know, a little bit, with a, with a little bit easier, uh, a little bit easier path here. Because we, we watched you as you were crucified and died. And now, you know, you're back again. That's wonderful, Jesus. But we don't want to go through that. And this is what a lot of us do too, because we love the free gift of salvation. But then when we find that it costs to follow him, we're like, hold on, I didn't hear about that. And if somebody told you before you got saved that you just get saved and everything's going to be just wonderful, they lied to you, and they did not give you the real gospel. Jesus is a real savior, but there will be a real cost to follow him. It was free to provide to you, but to follow him will cost and it costs everything. See, life in the world only comes through death in the church. Life in the world will only come through death in the church. Not physical death, but death to our comfort, death to our personal preferences, death to our apathy, death to what we hold as to be familiar and comfortable. We trade out our fleshly desire to be served, to be catered to, to be comfortable for the spiritual call to give, to suffer and to sacrifice so that the spiritually dead may live. There has to be death in the church for life to take place in the world. Look at verse number 25. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given for me to you to fulfill the word of God. In the CSB it says, I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given for me to, uh, to me for you to make the word of God fully known. 
Here's where Paul calls himself a minister according to the dispensation of God. Now, you see that word minister, and you think that just means a pastor, someone who's professionally called into the service of God. But the Greek word there that is translated to minister in the King James is actually diakonos, which means a servant or a slave. That's where we get our word for deacon, which basically applies to anyone, that when we are saved, our role is to be a diakonos, is to be a servant to God. So it's not talking about, Paul's not saying here, I'm suffering because I'm an apostle and because I'm better than you and more is expected of me because I'm an apostle. No, this suffering and this sacrifice is going to be expected of every follower of Jesus Christ. It's not just of some, it's of every single one of us. And so the question is, is this how you see yourself when you approach the ministry? When you approach the gospel, when you approach church, do I see myself as the servant of the church? Do I see myself as a servant of God? Or do I see myself as a beneficiary of God? Or as a beneficiary of the church and the ministries that take place? Do you come in here primarily asking, what can this church do for me? Or do you come in asking, what role am I supposed to play in his church? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with benefiting. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with saying my family has been blessed by being part of Graceway Church. Nothing wrong with that at all. But is it primary? Is it primary? Are you coming in saying what they give me is the most important thing that keeps me there? Or do you come in saying I feel God has called me to this place because this is where he wants me to serve and fulfill my, what Paul says, my dispensation for his glory. When that dispensation is in the original language just basically means commission or individual calling. And this is where we have to understand that you have the church and its vision at large, but God is going to give each believer a vision personally for ministry too. Every one of us have a ministry and a calling to fulfill. And there's no retirement date on it. God calls us to serve him until he's finished. And then if he's finished with us, he calls us to another place or he calls us home. Or he calls us to another area of ministry or he calls us home. Because he didn't just save us so that we could sit. He saved us so that we could serve. It's an individual assignment, Paul says. I have this individual assignment. My individual assignment is to be here in prison suffering for you right now so that the gospel can be made known because God is doing things through this for the gospel. And he says, and he says this, that I believe, and this is the thought that we have to come to, thought number four, is that every believer owes the gospel to the world. Every believer owes the gospel to the world. I love what David Platt says. He says, every saint this side of heaven owes the gospel to every sinner this side of hell. Every saint this side of heaven owes the gospel to every sinner this side of hell. That means we cannot be silent. That means that what we need to be talking about is Jesus. What we need to be consumed with is the gospel going forth. In Romans 1.14, he called himself a debtor to the Romans. He sensed this call from God that he needed to personally carry the gospel to Rome, which was basically the capital of the world at that time. He said, I need to carry the gospel to Rome. I need to carry the gospel straight up to Caesar's palace, straight into Caesar's palace, not the casino, the real palace. Got it? All right. God gave him a commission to carry the gospel there, and he felt he personally was a debtor to the Romans. He felt indebted to carry the gospel there, that if he didn't get the gospel there, then he would be reneging that he would be reneging on this debt. And in the same way, we owe an incredible debt to the world too. 
Our debt may not be to go to, the, go to the capital of the world and preach the gospel, but we do have a debt to take the gospel to the world. So what's your world? What's your world of influence? Your neighborhood, my job, my school, my local grocery store, my home, my civic, my, my, my civic organization that I'm part of, my gym, You can tell that I've not been called to that mission field specifically. My team, my scout club, whatever it may be, that's my mission field. That's my dispensation. That's my individual commission of God. Here's the question. Where would you be if Jesus had not chosen to go to the cross and die for you? Had he not died to save you? Had someone not brought the gospel to you? You'd be in the exact same place that billions of people are in right now. A place of no hope, nowhere to turn, despair, and death. So the question for us as a church is how can we receive such a benefit of such an extravagant grace and do nothing to get get it to those who have never heard it? Don't we owe the gospel to those who don't know him? As a church, we have to stop walking around with a chip on our shoulder, acting like the world owes us something because they don't owe us a thing. We owe them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the question is, am I fulfilling that commission, that personal commission? Do you see yourself as personally owing the gospel to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your world of influence? Every saint of God is a servant of God, and every child of the king is a debtor to the world. This leads to the fifth thought is that without Christ in our lives, our lives should make no sense to the people who watch us live it. In Colossians 1.26, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. What is this mystery he's talking about? The mystery he's talking about is life. What's going to make my life make sense? Anybody ever heard of the Rosetta Stone? Not Not the language software that you can do to learn a foreign language, but the Rosetta Stone that was found... Uh, several hundred years ago that was basically this key that unlocked the world's languages that we could begin to translate and understand one another. What this passage is telling us is that when it comes to this great mystery of life, not knowing why we're here, not knowing my purpose, not knowing where I came from or where I'm going, Jesus is the Rosetta Stone. He's that key that unlocks all of life's mysteries. When Jesus is applied to my life, everything begins to make sense. I'm no longer just a cosmic accident. I am a handcrafted creation of God called for a holy purpose to make him known and to make him famous. As a church, we're, no longer just, we're not supposed to just meander about trying, trying this, trying that, seeing if it will get more people in the pews. We're supposed to be about life change, personally discipling, personally taking the gospel forth, and to see the kingdom of God grow as it grows in the hearts of, of people. Without Christ, our lives should make no sense. This is the mystery. And then it goes on in verse number 27 to say, To whom God would make known what is the riches of this glory, this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Here's what Paul's saying. As a Christian, as a follower of Christ, you're not supposed to make sense to people. And you're finally thinking, there it is. All my life I felt like a weirdo. There's my reason. Christ in us is a mystery to the world. That Christ, his sufferings being manifest in us, his sacrifice manifest in us, his service poured out in service through us to others. This is mysterious to other people. 
Other people should look at our lives and see something that they can only describe as it's a mystery. Look at how, that, look at how they give, man. Look at how they forgive. Look at how, they're, look at how they love each other. Look at all of those things, man. Do you know what they're about? You know what they're doing? I don't know. It's a mystery to me. The mystery to the world is Christ in us. The hope of glory. The mystery to the world is not I'm a Christian and I, fall, I check all these boxes on the, political, on the political scale. The mystery to the world is not I'm a Christian so I do all of these things. And this. The mystery to the world is Christ in me. The hope of glory. And this is the goal. In verse number 28 it says, Who we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present everyone perfect in Jesus Christ. And this is why I also labor, striving according, according to his working, which works mightily in me. This is the goal. This is the target, that we preach, we warn, we teach Jesus in order to present people mature and complete in Christ so that when they stand before God, he says, why should I let you into my heaven? They say, because I plead the blood of Jesus in my life. And if we have to suffer, if we have to sacrifice, if we have to give as those who have already pled the blood so that more will plead the blood, so be it. What purpose is greater? When you live your life and breathe your last breath, what will it matter? What will anything else matter? But the people you told about Jesus Christ. And this is the last thought. The best way to deepen your relationship to Christ is to help people discover theirs here. He said, I preach, I warn, I teach, I do everything I can so that other people can know Christ as their Savior, so that they can be ready to meet Jesus. This is Christ working in me and working through me. You see, there's no books you can read, no number of times that you can read through the Bible. We should be in the Word of God. But reading through the Bible a million times doesn't make me more spiritual and closer to God. It may make him more real in my life. I may know more about him. But if I truly want to grow in my relationship with the Lord, i got to take what I know to people who don't. Nothing will grow you more than personally investing spiritually in someone else. This is why we're big on discipleship here. That we should disciple one another and we should be seeking to disciple others as well. Fulfilling that personal commission that we have. Because here's the result in verse, verse number 2 of chapter 2. Here's what we're hoping for. Here's why we're here. Here's why we're replanting. Here's why we need first-gen faith. Because there's a whole bunch of people that need their hearts to be comforted. There's a whole lot of people who need their hearts to be knit together in love. And that they need to be called to the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Because in Jesus and in Jesus alone are hid all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's why we're here. So that the world may see Jesus.